0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Restaurants employ over 15 million people nationwide. And two-thirds of all restaurants are independently owned and not part of big chains. Yet, currently, these small businesses are not represented in government relief negotiations. Roar is working to change that by fighting for relief opportunities for all restaurants. Roar is advocating for an eight-point plan in New York State that will allow restaurants to reopen and rehire when the time comes. Dozens of industry leaders have signed onto this plan, like Namwa Tea Parlor, Field Trip, Momofuku, and many more of your favorites. You can join them at change.org by searching for Roar, Relief opportunities for all
2: restaurants. Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's episode, following our ongoing coverage of how the coronavirus is affecting the restaurant industry, we head down to New Orleans. On March 17th, Devin DeWolf, the founder of The Crew of Red Beans, placed a $60 order of sweets for his wife's hospital, where she works as an ER doctor. Almost overnight, Feed the Frontline New Orleans was born. A first in the nation, the citywide system serves meals to every ER and hospital in the city while sustaining an army of local restaurants and out-of-work musicians who are trained and hired as delivery drivers. What makes Feed the Frontline so special is that they give restaurants the flexibility to create special meals. Rather than just feeding the body, they aim to feed the soul with food love. Since we spoke with Devin, he has also launched Feed the Second Line, which focuses on the Crescent City's infamous parades. Later on in the show, we drop into our musical vault and pull out an in-studio performance from 2019 by Lafayette, Louisiana, musical artist Roddy Romero, who would have been performing at the now-canceled historic New Orleans Jazz Fest this weekend. If you have a story that you'd like us to share about how you're reacting to coronavirus, please reach out to us at info at Thank you for listening and enjoy the episode.
3: We talk about food. We talk about music.
4: With musical dudes. Finger on the pole snacky to
5: ITunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. Um, on our continuing coverage of the coronavirus and how it is affecting the restaurant industry and how people are helping, we have Devin DeWolf from New Orleans, part of and founder of Feed the Frontline, NOLA. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's go back to 2008 with the formation of a Crew of Red Beans. Uh, for our... Listeners who don't know what crews are, can you explain the history of them and the origin of your crew? Uh,
6: sure. So crews in New Orleans are the groups that create um, parades um, for Mardi Gras, for a carnival. And our city is basically full of them because uh, everybody has kind of created their own tradition uh, out of our carnival. So there's probably, I don't know, 40 or 50 or Hundreds of them um, in our city. And our crew, uh, the crew of Red Beans, began um, basically to pay homage to the lowly but mighty Red Beans and Rice, <laughs> uh, which is such an important, you know, culinary uh, tradition for New Orleans. And it's something that really crosses uh, every aspect of society. Like everyone who lives here kind of grows up eating Red Beans and Rice. Uh, so what we do is we spend four or five months uh, every year making these very elaborate suits out of beans and rice. And then on the day before Mardi Gras Day, which is called Lundi Gras, um, we have a parade. And uh, for us, it's the most important Monday of the year.
5: And Monday is the day that you would traditionally eat red beans in New Orleans. So that's why we do it. Right. They're served, and for the listeners who don't know the tradition, that they're normally served uh, on Mondays. And it's usually free. Um, as a way to feed the uh, city.
6: Yeah, well, they're, I mean, they would be served like in the school cafeteria, or restaurants would do it as a daily special. Um, a lot of bars would have free red means with the uh, the music, you know, on Monday nights. So it's it's a pretty like widely held uh, tradition.
5: And for most people who don't know this, and and I did not know this until I started coming to New Orleans a number of years ago, that Mardi Gras is not just one day. It's a, it's a multi-week, multi-parade affair that starts small and then grows into what most people know from the outside. That's
6: right. It always begins on January 6th, which is, um, I guess 12th night, as we call it, uh, three Kings days, uh, what it's called in other parts of the world. And, um, Mardi Gras Day fluctuates, um, but it usually happens, you know, sometimes between mid-February and early March every year. So our carnival season can last anywhere from six weeks to two
5: months, basically. I mean, it's a, it's a real test of endurance. Yeah, we say it's a marathon, not a race. <laughs> uh, and, and for those of you who, uh, who are trying to envision what, one of your costumes look like? Can you describe it to us?
6: Uh, Sure. So people, um, I mean, I think they can look at, like they can find us on Instagram at Red Beans Parade, and you can go through and see just amazing, amazing bean suits, as we call them. Uh, Typically people um, go a couple different routes. Some people go with a pun, like Benjamin Franklin or... Uh, short-term lentils or something like that and then other people just kind of create a work of art that's maybe just like a dragon or uh, something like that and our crew members are incredibly incredibly creative Um, this year for example we had um, some a group of uh, four people who decided to be mounted police officers and they just were you know N.O.P. Bean was what they were called, um, kind of a play on the N.O.P.D., the New Orleans Police Department. Um, but the suits are just phenomenal because costuming is a very, very, very important part of our culture. And um, people just spend, you know, so much of their effort and energy to make a really good costume because that's kind of why we live here. <laughs> it's incredible. And, and you're also an artist as well, correct? Yeah, I'm a um, folk artist. Uh, I'm a painter, Um, and you know, a lot of my artistic um, uh, self-discovery, I guess I should say, or what led me down that pathway, is just living here because New Orleans is such a vibrant culture, and you're by being here, you're pretty much surrounded by art and music uh, all the time. And what distinguishes us from a lot of other places is that the art and the culture is actually made by regular people. Like, we don't really only experience culture by going and paying money to sit in a theater and watch a performance. But Mardi Gras Day, we are the show. Like, we are creating the culture ourselves for ourselves and all the visitors that come here. So it's a pretty special
5: environment. So we are recording this interview on April 10th. Um, it's pretty clear we're coming from New York, which was the original U.S. hot, hot zone, and New Orleans has been on the rise. Um, what is the current state and the, and the current feeling uh, as a local of uh, being in New Orleans going through this pandemic?
6: Yeah, well, um, so it's kind of funny to segue from talking about Mardi Gras because Mardi Gras this year was February 25th. That was the peak of Mardi Gras. And sort of what happened, um, what happens every year is hundreds of thousands of people travel to New Orleans from all over the world to be here for Mardi Gras. So when that happened this year, it brought COVID. And unfortunately for us, COVID was already here. We just didn't realize it. So we had probably, uh, and my wife is an ER doctor, and with hindsight, they're kind of thinking back of. Oh, yeah, this person was sick for two weeks with what is now recognized uh, based on the symptoms to be COVID. So we probably had it here in our community um, as early as December, but because of Mardi Gras, that just brought so much of it to our community. Um, and that's why we, I don't know if this is still the case this morning, but for the last couple of weeks, we've had the highest death rate per capita of any place. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, and it, <laughs> it's it's been a pretty tough uh, you know time for our city, and we're we're actually a pretty small city. I mean, there's 400,000 people that live here, and we have had more uh, cases in our city than like the state of Texas <laughs> uh, to put it into context. Um, I know New York City is really hard hit as well. Um, I, and, but we've like 8.4 million, which is yeah you know, proportionally yeah, right. very very different. Exactly. So we're, we're definitely hard hit and it's such a small town that, you know, somebody, um, you know, the first 20 people that died, um, I personally knew two of them and that was just the first 20. So I think we've had 500 or 600 deaths in our city now. And I honestly, at this point, I have no idea how many of those people I know because it's not like there's a list or anything that I can look at. But at the end of this, um, you know, everybody in our city is going to know a lot of people who have died, which is um you know very
5: difficult and I think what a lot of people don't understand is that after Katrina, it wasn't like the hospital system came back to full force it was it was or decimated by Katrina and was built back to maybe not the level that it was, and with you how a lot of people leaving the city maybe it was not as prepared for the pandemic as New York or or other cities could have been with the infrastructure that it has.
6: I don't know if I'd agree with that, actually, because um, I think that New Orleans is very fortunate with the the healthcare system that we do have in the sense that, like, if you're a doctor and you want to work in an ER, coming here is, like, the big time in the sense that you're going to deal with a lot of – trauma. So we have a very, very high level of, um, like medical staff, I would say. Um, even though when you, when you think of a larger societal issue, like post Katrina, mental health services did not come back to our city. So we have very huge problems, um, that are still kind of a result of what did not return from Katrina. But I would say that the actual healthcare system here is is very strong in the sense that we have, you know, safety net hospitals that take care of um, anyone, that take care of the poor, just regardless of um, insurance or not. And that's always been part of the tradition of um, uh, the city, uh, with, you know, going back to the 1700s, really. Um so, I mean, my wife is an ER doctor. I guess I'm probably a little biased, <laughs> but I would say I would say that they're very strong um, and they're incredibly hardworking right now, um, just like in New York, um, just like in a lot of the other cities. But um, they're probably, if you would ask them, they would probably say, "Well, we don't have all the equipment that we wish we did, or the protective gear that we wish we had," but. Um, I think it's, um, you know, I think they're handling the situation very admirably based on the, the number of cases and the um, amount of um, people that have gotten sick here. So well,
5: I, I stand corrected. Uh, let's focus on your wife, who is an ER doctor and is, is on the front lines. Um, she was it seems like the inspiration or a nurse from her team the inspiration for Feed the Front Lines. Um, what happened on March 17th that kicked this whole thing off?
6: Yeah, so Mardi Gras, like I said, was February 25th. And usually after Mardi Gras passes, it's like a very quiet time in New Orleans where we take a breather and we get ready for the festival season, as we call it. But after Mardi Gras passed, about a week and a half after, um, so early March, that's when a lot of COVID patients started showing up at my wife's hospital. And that's when we realized, like, oh, my God, you know, it's here. It's here in a really big way. So um, the first week of that, uh, the first week of March, uh, March 10th, March 11th, March 12th, my wife was working every day. And at the end of her shift, she would come home and, you know, we would check in and kind of debrief about the day. And she would tell me, you know, how things went. And um, basically the message that I was getting from, from her every single day was how incredibly um, stressful and difficult it is because, you know, the, the normal, like, ER doctor job – is a pretty stressful job, like normally, because you're saving people's lives. You're dealing with gunshot wounds. You're dealing with, you know, um, all kinds of trauma, car accidents, stabbings. You know, you name it. Heart attacks. Um, but for all of that stuff, the medical workers have had training. You know, they have like a, a a set of protocols, and they know what to do for any any given situation. Like if it's a gunshot wound here's what we're going to do. If it's a heart attack, here's what we're going to do. So I think a big stressor is that with COVID, they don't actually know what to do per se. Um, They're learning, but it's such a new uh, virus that a lot of it is kind of like they're learning as they go. So that's very stressful and I think mentally very challenging because it's, it's kind of like overloading, the brain in a sense and then the other stressor on top of that is that every single doctor, nurse, security guard, hospital cleaning staff, um, everyone who's working there when they go to work they know that they could contract the virus themselves and they can bring it home. So some of my wife's uh, co-workers are sick with COVID. Uh, Some of them are quarantining themselves away from their children or away from their family members. I mean, it's it's very stressful, um, and it's kind of like an invisible enemy. So it's hard to even know, like, have you already had it? You know, do you have it now? Are you just asymptomatic? Um, so it's a really difficult situation for them. And the first couple of days, my wife was dealing with that, and she would tell me about work every day, and it was clearly – the toughest time that she had had, I think, in her career. Um, And then one day she came home from work and she says, well, you know, today was terrible, but a nurse did bring cookies and shared the cookies with everybody. And that was really the aha moment because um, my work as a crew organizer, you know, we have a charity event with a bunch of restaurants that compete every year to see who can make the best red beans, you know, and as soon as my wife told me about the nurse that brought the cookies, the light bulb kind of hit, uh, went off in my brain because it sort of made sense. Like, of course, you know, every workplace, no matter what it is, if somebody brings delicious food and shares it with everybody, that's a really good thing. So that night, um, you know, I placed an order for $60 worth of um, these little Brazilian treats called a Brigadero from one of the restaurants that I knew. And my wife picked him up and brought him to work uh, the next day. So that was Tuesday, March 17th. And I emailed out um, our crew members. There's 350 people in the group. Uh, So I said, hey, who wants to donate some money? Because this might be a small gesture that we could do to help in the situation. And also, if we can provide a little bit of work for the restaurants right now, that would be really helpful for them. So it's kind of like a win-win. And that's how we started. So the first day, it was a $60 order. And today, as we speak, we are literally buying food for every single ER and ICU in the city of New Orleans. Um, It's about 15 different hospitals, about 1,900 meals that will go out today, paid for by our crew, uh, by people donating money. And uh, we're pumping, you know, $20,000 today alone into the, the local restaurants here. Um, So it's kind of like a life support system for them now, too.
5: We're going to take a quick musical break and play a song for our archives, and then we're going to come back and talk with Devin from Feed the the Frontline about the structure of this logistics and how they're also employing local musicians and artists. We'll be right back here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. Mm
4: Door back then, she didn't know how to fit in, and everyone kept telling her. Don't talk back, don't ask us why, just sit down quietly and smile.
5: You just mentioned that you're doing 1,900 meals a day, and we are less than a month from your first order of $60, which is just incredible. Uh, how do you scale something like this? How do you put the infrastructure together so quickly? Because I know a lot of other cities and states who are, whose cases are still ramping up could look to this as a model of how they can help and support.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I think it can work anywhere, uh, first of all. Um, if it's set up properly. And, you know, the first couple days, um, you know, day one, I think we received $500 worth of donations. Day two, we received $1,500 worth of donations. And that was kind of a moment where we had to decide, are we going to just do a slow trickle of food, you know, like to stretch it out, make it last? Or are we going to just spend as much money as we possibly can every single day? (laughs) (laughs) and I think it's really amazing to feed the hospital workers. Obviously they're working very hard right now and they need all the moral support and the morale boosting that they can get. But my primary objective is actually saving the uh, mom and pop local restaurants because uh, New Orleans has such a culinary history and our city is blessed with so many amazing chefs here and most of the best food is not actually found in the French Quarter. Most of the best food can be found in the neighborhoods at these kind of independently run restaurants that are often, you know, just uh, a husband and a wife or just one person who's the owner, and it's not like a big corporation or anything like that. So we've been trying to uh, help as many as possible. And what we basically do is we start – with a very difficult conversation with, uh, with each restaurant owner, and we basically say, you know, look, everybody just laid off all of their workers, um, and obviously your business looks destroyed. You know, you might be making a hundred dollars a day, where before you were making ten thousand dollars a day or something like that. So we ask them, okay, what are the what are the essential bills that you have to pay to survive to make sure you don't close? And we call that number the survival price point, point. and once they tell us that number, we just divide it by four weeks and divide it by how many days they want to work, and that gives us a daily target for us to hit for each restaurant. And the closer we get to that target, that enables us as a whole system to save an additional restaurant because every single restaurant's naturally going to want to get more and more work. They're going to want to bring back as many of their workers as possible. But we have to think like a big team in this situation to get by. Um, so as we've grown the number of restaurants that we're working with, um, we're very careful not to do it too quickly because we can't dilute the pool, so to speak. And we also have to be very strategic to make sure that every restaurant is not necessarily getting too much business from us. And by combining that kind of, those principles, we're able to work, you know, today we're ordering from 38 different restaurants. So I'm not saving every restaurant in my city. I wish I could, but I'm able to save some of the ones that people would be very sad about if they were gone, you know, Um, some of the really special mom and pop places. And, We're also kind of able to mix in some really famous chefs that maybe they're doing a couple meals a week for us just to thank the hospital workers. Um, But the bulk of our orders go to these smaller places that really, really need to have the support right now so that they can survive. And as we added more and more hospitals, because word of mouth would spread, and people would say, oh, I hear what you're doing. That's really, uh, that's great. You know, our hospital is also struggling you know, we're working really hard fighting COVID. Can you, can you help us too? Can you send us some food? And the answer for us was always yes. <laughs> and that was always the answer because that would create another lifeline for another restaurant or possibly two restaurants. And so when we get a hospital, we basically say, all right, tell us exactly how many people work there in the day shift and the night shifts and tell us um, how to bring the food to you because each hospital Each hospital has their own kind of security protocols, and they don't really want surprises. They don't want somebody to show up with food, you know, unannounced, basically. So we work out a delivery system where they know exactly what time we're going to bring the food to them, and we know who to call when the food arrives. And um, we rotate the restaurants so the the hospital workers are always receiving a different meal each time because it's it's just rotating throughout our system. And the other innovation that we kind of did here that's different than a lot of other places is we started hiring musicians to be the delivery staff because our musicians are also out of work. They just lost Jazz Fest and French Quarter Fest which is basically their biggest moneymaker of the year. And what we are able to do is basically train them to make sure that they're delivering the food safely, that they're wearing masks, that they have gloves, that they have hand sanitizer. And we pair them to each hospital because after they've made one delivery, then they know the system and they know how to do it properly for that hospital. So we have, you know, 15 or 16 hospitals that we're sending food to today And we have 18 different musicians that are delivery people. And this is how we were able to scale up so quickly because we really don't mess up. We don't make mistakes. The food always gets there the right way. Um, And that's really, really, really important, I think, for any other city to understand. Because if you rely on volunteers to deliver the food, it's not going to be done that well, and you'll have less control over the specifics. But if you just hire people to do it, uh, you're creating another job. You're saving another uh, member of your community financially. And you can also ensure that the quality is really top-notch. And that's basically what we're doing.
5: It's it's incredible. I mean, just so incredible to hear that. And I think before the pandemic, if you heard a number like 38 or 18, you'd say, oh, that number doesn't seem too significant. But when you say saving 38 restaurants, employing 18 out-of-work musicians. It's it's just really, really phenomenal. Um, Some other numbers that I I love that you're putting up is that 53% of your businesses are are women-owned, 31% are minority-owned, 100% are local, which is great. Um, Was this just something natural that happened, or was this a conscious decision when you were expanding your circle and network of restaurants?
6: Yeah, well, it's always been um, what I've tried to do with our parade groups because, you know, New Orleans, like many places, has a, you know, history of segregation. And when you look at the number of restaurants in our city and then you look at the number of restaurants that are, say, owned by African Americans or other minority groups, it's pretty sad compared to the actual statistics of our population because, um, You know, I think 55% or so of our city is African American. So instead of that being 55% of restaurants are African American owned, it's very small. I don't know what the exact stat is right now, but it's probably under 20%. So as a parade organization, we always tried our best to um, make a nice impact in any way we could. And that was always how we operated with who we would hire to do things um, as the parade group, which, you know, it's not like we ever had a lot of money. I think our biggest budget ever was $100,000 <laughs> for the parade. Um, and, you know, we've already spent um, about a quarter of a million dollars uh, just by this, the last three weeks of our effort. Um, so we were really careful about who we would take on, which restaurant we would take on, and sometimes I have to make very difficult decisions, um, and it's, it's, it's very difficult sometimes to say to somebody, you know, I, I wish I could help you, but I, I just can't. Um, I had a conversation with someone who also has a restaurant in Chicago, and they have a branch here in New Orleans, and I had to just say, you know, this is kind of like your second home, and I can't justify sending money to you uh, to save that. I have to prioritize the the restaurants that are here, the people that live here, Um, and especially above all else, the people who really don't have maybe fame behind them or, um, you know, people that would have a harder time getting back on their feet after this is over. So we've been trying our best to operate um, with that mindset, and You know, I'm very proud uh, that each of those restaurants that we're working with right now, you know, they all have a great story. They all make really great food, first and foremost. Um, I'm not really buying food that's bad. (laughs) Um, You know, we we want the best possible food. And I guess another thing that's kind of cool is we're telling people not to have a certain price point. Um, We basically tell each restaurant, you know, don't overcharge us. Don't send caviar and filet mignon to the hospital because that would be unsustainable. But we do want food that's made with love. And there's certain dishes here that are made really, really, like, complicated dishes that if you receive that food, you're going to know that it was really prepared with someone's heart. And that's kind of what we're going for here. So, you know, we What's try to nice? give each restaurant a lot of flexibility on price points and all that stuff and um you know yesterday we completed our 24,000th uh,
5: order which is also just a crazy stat <laughs> so can you can you give me a, a few examples of restaurants uh and the dishes that are made with mugs, the more complicated ones pair the dish with the restaurant
6: yeah i mean you know we started getting uh, really amazing pictures Uh, yesterday from the restaurants, we asked them, you know, we've been thinking about it every time there's a photograph of food in a box. It's kind of hard to show the quality of the food. So we started asking people to send us just plate a a dish, like as if you were serving it in your restaurant to a dining room guest and send us that picture. And yesterday we started getting some of them and they're just phenomenal. I mean, um, one that comes to mind is, Uh, an operation called mosquito supper club that's a woman-owned business here and um melissa sent you know stuffed louisiana uh, crabs and that's something that when the hospital workers get that you know that's something that is not in any way shape or form in the same realm of like a ham sandwich you know what i mean
5: and if you're wondering if that worked, um, I actually saw that photo on Jeff Gordonaire, uh, who was over at Esquire. He posted the photo of Melissa's dish, and that's what led me to you and, and for us to talking. So, like, that actually works, and it's incredible for us to see outside of it what's going on down in, down in New Orleans. Um, what's another example of a restaurant and a, a dish made with lunch?
6: Oh, well, um, you know, I was um, lucky enough to taste it myself. There's a woman named uh, Queen Trini Lisa. She does Trinidadian food. Uh, She has, like, a very small operation out of a bar in uh, Central City in New Orleans. And she made just the most amazing, like, pieces of chicken thigh and chicken, I don't even know exactly what body part. It was, like, all the scraps basically in a stew. And um, some sort of, like, chickpea, almost like a potato salad, but with chickpeas. And just the spices and the—I mean—it was phenomenal. It was like literally some of the best food when, I've eaten this month. Hold on, I, I lost you
5: yeah. after you said chickpea. Could you repeat that?
6: Yeah, it was, it was like almost kind of like a potato salad, but made with chickpeas and tomato or uh, potatoes. And the spices—I mean, I don't actually know a lot about Trinidadian food, but I ate it and was beyond happy. Uh, it was one of the best meals that I've had, like, in the last two months of my life, like, period. And, um, you know, the kind of idea is, like, we have this amazing talent pool of chefs in New Orleans, um, people like Kristen Essig from Talia and Coquette, or, um, you know, people like the Papusa shop, um, Will, um, has a pupusa shop named uh, Maui Tortilleria. And it's just, there's all these little spots that are kind of hole-in-the-wall places that make just delicious food. And um, it's really wonderful to just make sure that the doctors and nurses and hospital staff are receiving, like, actual I'm going to drop my job because this looks amazing. I'm yeah, salivating yeah. all over at food. <laughs> and I've gotten lots of updates from my wife. Like when she goes to work, she always comes home and tells me, ooh, this was the meal today at the hospital. Um, you know, Justine, uh, that's a restaurant uh, that is connected to Le Petit Grocery. Another, they have two restaurants. And they were making something that was just um, kind of like a braised beef stew over Um, you know, risotto and my wife was just like flabbergasted with how good it was. And I think we have to always remember that the healthcare workers, you know, they're working so hard and you could feed them, um, something that would satisfy their calorie intake and their protein levels, you know, to sustain their body. (laughs) But if you can give them food, that's going to actually touch their heart and get to their soul. Um, that's really going to make an impact right
5: now. So that's what we're trying to do. Amazing. And, and you wouldn't be complete without also thanking some of your local sponsors. Uh, I think what's amazing is when looking at who else is supporting just the local businesses that have come and donated and donated money to this cause outside of the individual donations. Who are some of the partners that really stepped up and, and helped feed the, the nurses and doctors in this time?
6: Yeah, we've been incredibly fortunate. I mean, some of the most important donors that we've had, um, there's a NBA player, DJ Augustine, who grew up in New Orleans. He was the first person to really make, a, like, a sizable donation to us, and that was really important at the time because it sustained our operation for, like, literally another two days <laughs> because there's been points that our bank account has had, you know, $60 in it, And we're like, oh, are we going to be able to do this for another day? I don't know. Let's see what happens today. Um, So that was huge. We've had a group of law firms that joined together. Um, They call it themselves Light Lawyers Initiative to give back to hospital um, uh, workers, and that has been really uh, a, a blessing for us to keep going. And recently, um, we think uh, Zatarain's and um, Popeye's has really stepped up. Popeye's, uh, you know, has a history connected to New Orleans, and they reached out, and um, they're going to uh, be supporting us pretty soon as well. But the backbone of our operation comes from small donors, and I can't stress that enough because when all these people are stuck home quarantined, you know, Uh, having somebody send us $5 or $20 or $50, that's happening on such a level that it's really sustaining our operation. And so it's not necessarily like there's a superhero with a giant bank account coming to save the day. It's really almost like, say, the Bernie Sanders campaign where there's just a bunch of small donors. And when someone gives us money, you know, we don't spend a penny on administrative Uh, stuff. I mean, literally everything that we receive is going to go to either a local musician, a local artist, a local uh, printing press, you know, for our flyers and stuff like that, and a local restaurant. And at the end of the day, you know, what price would you pay to save your favorite restaurant, you know, so that you could continue to eat there for the rest of your life? You know, that's, I think, something that is just incredibly valuable. And, I'm really proud that we've been able so far to save these 38 and I'm just, I wake up every day and I, I basically, my goal is to continue for as long as COVID, you know, so that at the end of COVID we can walk out of here and really save those restaurants that are so special to our city.
5: Well, Devin, uh, I think if anything, what this has truly shown us is the has shown through this time and whether it's people making things or supporting the communities, and your story is—I don't have any words left. My my like heart is burst open, and my jaw is on the floor. And if you saw me, you'd see me wiping away tears. It's just really uh, thank you. It's just really incredible. Um, where can people find you? How can they donate? Um, how can they uh, participate? Give their their donations. What's the information?
6: Sure. So our website is feedthefrontlinenola.org, and they can donate through that website. And we're also teaching people in other cities how to do it. We've been sharing all of our best practices and everything that we've learned with anyone who's wanted to start one in their city or their community. Um, that's something I'm also incredibly proud of. I've personally spoken with 20 or 30 people in, uh, all over America Um, and it's a movement. I mean, there's uh, groups like Frontline Foods, which we're also uh, working with them. Um, You know, we're all sharing our best practices because this this really is something that can happen anywhere if it's set up right, uh, the right way. I think it can have a huge impact. And, um, you know, I really appreciate your time and the opportunity to share uh, what we've done here in New Orleans. Um, I can also share with you a very sad but uh, touching uh anecdote <laughs> Please. if you like. Please. Um this this will probably make me cry as well because um I've told this anecdote about twenty times and I keep thinking it's gonna be uh you know, I'm I'm not gonna tear up, but I always do. So um the fourth or the fifth day that we were doing this, a woman reached out and um she said on uh, on an Instagram message uh, she said, you know, my father died. So there I go. Here <laughs> up again. Uh, she said, she's like, you know, I heard what you're doing, uh, sending food to the hospital. That's really wonderful. And I don't think that you're sending food to this particular hospital where our father died. But I wanted to try to send them food because <sighs> – sorry, gets me every time, you know, she said, you know, the ER and the ICU staff, they took um, such good care. And obviously, you know, it's very difficult when your uh, family member dies because of COVID. But for her to be able to, to express her gratitude through food to the hospital staff was something that I think probably helped her in the healing process and for the, the doctors and the nurses and everybody at, those, uh, at that ER and that ICU, you know, for them, when, when a patient dies, it's a failure. And it's something that really gets to them and eats away at their, their heart. And to get a message like that from a family where instead of it being just a, a failure, it can, it, it, you know, it can still show the gratitude And I I just think that that's, like, incredibly important right now because we have to fight through COVID, and we have to stay positive and stay optimistic. And even when um, that happens, even when it's the worst-case scenario where someone passes away, I think all the medical staff should just remember that even though that happened, it's still – the the community and the, the families are, are just beyond appreciative.
5: Wow. So, Kevin, I don't you know whether
6: I can uh, tell that story without crying.
5: <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I don't, it is, I, I would never expect you to. Yeah. I would never expect you to. Yeah. I think that those are the things that we'll take from this. Those are the things that will sustain us. And these are the things that we'll remember and, I just want to thank you for making time and uh, sharing the story with us and just, and being candid. Um, please, if you're listening and you want to bring this to your city or if you want to donate, please, 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 please go to feed the Frontline, NOLA. Um, we're going to play one more song from the archives uh, and we'll be back next week with continuing coverage of the restaurant industry community and how it's reacting to the COVID pandemic. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.
6: Thanks for having us.
4: show, chicos, chicas, pobres, no escuchamos tu rock, masticamos odio, chicos sin diversión, ni trabajo fijo ¿Quieres su estereo? ¿Quieres que lo cuide? Cuida coche hasta la cuido Cuida coche, hasta lo cuido ¡Wow! Ay, muchos como show, chicos, chicas No escuchamos en tu rock. Platicamos adiós, chicos. Sin diversión, ni trabajo fijo. ¿Quieres su deseo? ¿Quieres que lo cuide? Cuida coche, hasta la cuidó. Cuida coche, hasta la cuidó. Cuida coche, hasta la cuidó. Cuida coche, hasta la cuidó.
7: Restaurants employ over 15 million people nationwide, and two-thirds of all restaurants are independently owned and not part of big chains. Yet currently, these small businesses are not represented in government relief negotiations. Roar is working to change that by fighting for relief opportunities for all restaurants. Roar is advocating for an eight-point plan in New York State that will allow restaurants to reopen and rehire when the time comes. Dozens of industry leaders have signed on to the plan, like Namwa Tea Parlor, Field Trip, Momofuku, and many more of your favorites. You can join them at change.org by searching for Roar, relief opportunities for all restaurants.
2: Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. Roddy Romero, nice to meet you. Hello, pleasure to meet you. Well, we met a couple days ago. Yes. Yeah, but we'll say in our official capacities, (laughs) professional (laughs) roles, if you will. Today. 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 I want to do a little bit of framing for people of where we are because in reading about your music and what you play, uh, I'll just, you know, Zydeco, Swamp Rock, Cajun music, Creole music. Can you clarify All for the uneducated? All descriptions <laughs> oh, there. <yeah>. Can you <coughs> clarify for the uneducated masses?
8: Well, uh, these days the description is uh, the Lafayette sound maybe or more of uh, what Lafayette may sound like. Uh, all of those sounds that you described is, is definitely where I come from and what uh, moves me in terms of music. Uh, it's all the sounds that I heard growing up as a kid here uh, in Lafayette, uh, the hub city, the, the heart of Acadiana, so to speak. Um, from, from Zodico, uh, El Cido's Blues and Zodico Club, growing up, going there and listening to uh, the famous Buckwheat Zodico and Listening to uh, artists like Zachary Richard, more of a songwriter approach of Cajun music, Cajun rocker, and uh, and, and and back to our great public uh, radio station KRVS, uh, still making all of these sounds uh, each and every day and every weekend. Uh, it's a great blend. It's a great gumbo. It's a it's what we sound like here.
2: Did the sounds used to be more? Separated, like you went to a place for Zydeco, you went for a place for Swamp Rock, you went for a place for Blues, you went for a place for Rock and Roll. Did it,
8: was it segmented uh, that way? Or yeah, did it, like I think it, so. Growing up, uh, I started playing music when I was 12 years old. Um, what was your first love? Uh, my first love?
2: For the mu- musical instrument?
8: Uh, well, it was the French box, it was the melodeon, it was the, the, the accordion, what we call it here, but it's not called an accordion. It's not an accordion, it's a, a tin button box um much like our harmonica it's diatonic so it's there's no sharps or flats you pull one note you push it it's two different sounds so that was my first love i first heard that from my grandfather he played a handful of songs for for us on sunday afternoons when we'd visit the old people in the country what songs did he play he played uh he played one song uh it was called fifi poncho or fifi foncho whatever side of the the river you're from uh, he played that song a lot, so I remember that one the most, uh, and maybe a couple of waltzes. But uh, again, it was this fascinating um, uh, orchestra in a box. It was a, it, was a, it was a carnival. It was a Ferris wheel. It was all of that that sounded like that to a five-year-old, six-year-old child. Right. You know, so that, that's what drew me in first. And you toured around
2: as a, I don't want to say a courting prodigy, but you could really play.
8: Well, in those days, uh, I I started when I was nine. Um, I started having the love, or at least my my earliest memories were five, six years old. I had uh, a great uncle, uh, Noc Black is what they called him. He was blind. He played the French box. We'll call it the French box for this program. uh, By its rightful
2: name as it should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And
8: uh, he played uh, just, you know, like the Vuitton, the old time, that nobody, like today, nobody plays this way. So that's that's like, it gives me the goosebumps talking about it. That's the earliest memories that I have musically in the family. And again, with my grandfather. And then uh, my father bought the French box when I was nine years old for my brother and I. My brother's 10 years uh, older than me. Two kids, one French box. Did you fight over it? Exactly. And whatever reason, because he's older and he's bigger, uh, he, I won. So I locked myself in the room for the next two years with the French box and vinyl records of, of my parents. This was French music from the 1960s, dance hall music, like people like Belton Richard, Aldous Roger. Uh, these were, this was Cajun music at a time where... It was, uh, it was twin fiddles, it was steel guitar, it was lots of Bob Wheels influence coming through Louisiana. So that's the records that I grew up on. And like a lightning bolt, this, this young guy, and I say young, he was in his 20s or you know, early 30s then, then being 1988 or so, called Wayne Toops. And he, he was from the country, he played this French box, he had a band that backed him that had a piano, that had electric guitars, that had electric bass, that had drums. And it sounded like the Almond Brothers uh, singing in French from the bayou or from the rice fields of Crowley. Uh, and that, that, that changed a path and, and everything else has been different after that. The sounds of the bayou has changed after that.
2: And just for a quick understanding, how long has your family been in this area
8: uh, well, since I was born, uh, my my dad is from uh, the Ridge uh, Judice area. My mother is from Rain, Louisiana, uh, a little bit further west from Lafayette. When they met, they met at a at a bar called the OST Club, the old Old Spanish Trail. Uh, they they met over a dance and fell in love, and they were you know, teenagers, and people got married back then when they were teenagers. Do you think people meet that way anymore? I don't People meet I don't know, uh, like, a dance? I don't think they get married as teenagers, thankfully. No. Uh, but <laughs> <No>. <laughs> there's lots of meeting at the
2: dance halls. Yes. Still. Uh, and how did your music evolve? You, you know, you toured um, at a young age. When did guitar enter your life? When did singing enter your life? And, and who guided you onto that path?
8: Yeah, um, I... I for me, you know, like, like it changed with Wayne Toops, that my, my, I got out of, out of the dance hall records and then there, this was this rock and roll sound that kind of entered. But it was still fronting, uh, the, the, the French box was still the front of the, of the show. So it, it, people like Zachary Richard and, and then <clears throat> I, I got invited to play the Montreal Jazz Festival when I was 13 years old. How did did that how happen? How did they find I you? have no idea. I mean this is uh, you know
2: I don't won't I won't tell people yeah. your age, but this was definitely pre-internet.
8: Yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, so well, did, and you have no I mean, I guess you, you know at that time if you're the if you're the French rock prodigy. If you're the only <laughs> young kid at that time playing, you know, the old time music, then that's how they're it, gonna find you. That's how it <laughs> happened. Yeah, absolutely. At least we'll talk about it in yeah. that way. So it uh so I played that jazz fest, and then then I discovered this guy called Sonny Landreth, and he played the bottleneck slide. He lived in Lafayette. He was from Mississippi. I heard these sounds that that were that he was producing out of this bottleneck and this this firebird Gibson guitar that I never heard in my life at that time before. My only records were you know pedal steel guitars and twin fiddles and nice smooth sound, and it was it was another voice that that. Uh, drew me in, intrigued me it it, it it pulled me, it grabbed me, it did everything that it shook my bones, and I knew at that point in my life that here 's another path that well let 's let's let 's entertain this and and I want a guitar now. Do you remember how it made you feel sure uh, i um, i couldn 't there's there 's this one time that um it 's in montreal it 's at the jazz fest. I hear this guitar down the road. It's a sound check. It's during the daytime. And again, it's it's something that I never heard. And I fi- found myself walking faster and faster and picking up speed to the stage and then seeing Sonny up on the stage and doing these things that, something I never heard before. It was, it's like, you know, listening to that first Rolling Stone record or or the first Bob Dylan record or for me the first Clifton Chenier record, Zadiko Cha-Cha, that just you know, it hits you in the forehead and it says, hey man, this is, this is something special here. If you don't feel this, you must be dead. Can we hear a song? Sure. What are you gonna play for us first? Uh, I'm gonna play a song that uh, was penned by Eric Adcock, my uh, musical brother for a long, long time. And I, uh, I got the chance to arrange the song in this very studio. Maybe about five or six years ago for an album called Gulf Stream. The song is called Gulf Stream.
2: Here we are with Roddy Romero, live from Dockside Studios on Snacky Tunes
3: been shucking dozens since 42 iron tub ice down full of Falstaff brew black had a son Bobby Charles called blue Catholic church bells told the Louisiana blues Oyster rake scraping down Grand Isle Way Don't get no more salty than Baratari Bay A hundred years my family's done it this way Some folks call it work, but it's just another day And in life there's always love Comes into your heart from up above Gather my dreams and put them out to sea Gulfstream and I'm free Politicians, trappers, priests, and more They've all strolled through these double French doors I was so busy just trying to keep their glasses full Folks laughing, drinking, just shooting the bull Vermillion parish sunsets across my bow Just slipped off the edge and I don't know how I turn the key in the lock and close up shop The owl flies round the old steeple's clock And in life there's always love comes into your heart from up above. Gather my dreams and put them out to sea Gulf stream and I'm free. The light gently taps me on the shoulder And the ice in the glass melts under the whiskey that I pour The salt in the air from the storm off the coast As I pull from my glass and offer up this toast It's been a good run, it's been a good haul My nets are full, time to pull in my trawl Mes amis, ma famille, especial spécial pour mon père Que te file, so soit plan de free de mer and in life, there's always love. Comes into your heart from up above. Gather my dreams and put them out to sea. Gulf stream, and now I'm free.
8: Sounds a bit rough.
2: It was perfect. (laughs) You mentioned Eric Adcock, who is your co-founder, brother in music, of the Hub City All-Stars. Sure. Uh, Formed 25 years ago. Or more. Or more. Uh, How did you two meet? Uh, How did you come to, in your musical evolution, form this band, and and how has it stayed together for so long? Yeah,
8: good questions. Uh, Let me start by saying we've been making music together for... Close to 30 years, maybe. Um, we met through, I think maybe my brother was introduced or another friend musician. It's very hazy. It goes so long back. Uh, A lot of late nights we, we in <laughs> between. <laughs> we lived in the same neighborhood, or at least uh, adjoining neighborhoods. And there weren't very many young young guys, young cats at that time playing uh louisiana blues or french music or zydeco music or cajun music at that time so we were bound or destined or uh it was uh in our cards to hook up uh and there after that we we wrote songs about playing cards and drinking and a lot of things and you know the rest is history as they all say but we've made music together uh and we've traveled the world and we've seen so many places and uh, We've made some brilliant records along the way that had a few Grammy nominations and a few pats on the back, and it all feels amazing, and it all feels good, and, you know... Every moment passes, and we're all getting older. And I just hope that we can continue to play music and do the same thing.
2: Well, what's amazing about this music is that uh, it's timeless. So yeah. you don't you don't look at someone who's eighty playing this music and be like, "Ooh, you're out of place." You're like well, you're almost you know, like right in place.
8: I growing up and playing French music at the age thirteen, I was the only kid playing at right. that time, and every, all of the musicians that were surrounding me were older. They were. They were older people. I've always played old music. I've always played music that I felt like were my parents' music. But in my mind, in my perspective, it's all timeless. Like you said, it's it all feels like where we come from. It's all a part of us. It's our sound. We travel the world and we take it to to other places. And people feel that whatever we're feeling, you know, however you. I, I don't know how to describe it. It's really tough to put words to for me. But just the feeling. I mean, you're still growing into the music. You're sure. still a young guy. I'm, I haven't played <laughs> for my peers very much. Still, it, right. we still, you know, draw an older crowd out there. The demographic that we play for is a a bit older. Uh, they go to dances to dance. They 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 show their appreciation appreciation by dancing, you know, more than applause. What do you learn so.
2: from playing with someone for almost three decades? How does it evolve and, and what language do you develop and how does this, this sound continue to grow and expand from from being and having such a consistent partner
8: you learn different languages like non communication in terms of not verbally saying something but musically uh, or or an cue or an elbow cue you know in li- in the life setting you learn things like that you learn things that are are, are more natural and um, I heard this, this, this uh, podcast the other day of uh, um, Rusty and Doug Kershaw, and, and when Rusty was making records, he, he had this, I don't know what he called it, There's a, there was a, uh, a term for it, but it was just like this unknown energy that if he was sitting in the same room, he can anticipate what the other musician was going to do or transfer that energy and when you play with somebody for so long you, you, that it either happens or it doesn't, you know, you, you're, you, you feel that energy.
2: Uh, place factors into a lot of your music. Uh, Hub City is sure. another name for, for Lafayette. Yeah. Um, you talk about Vermillionville Vermilionville Parish and, and Gulfstream. Right. Everyone's hometown affects their music, the, you know, the Beatles, the Stones, yeah. as you mentioned yeah. earlier, all the New York great punk bands – how does this place affect your music? And outside of the cultural heritage that comes from music you listen to, what is it about this place that seeps into the music that you're making and writing?
8: Well, if, if you grow up uh, waking up first thing and you smell a roux on the stove, that is going to change your day. That's going to change your outlook on life and how you uh, present yourself to the world. When you, That's the first thing that you smell, and coffee grounds brewing. I feel like we how what we want to write about is is very it's plentiful here it's uh there's so many raconteurs there's so many storytellers in in our parts in this area you can go down to the to the uh, corner bar and meet all sorts of characters and and uh, hear all sorts of stories and so people people want to share their knowledge, share their stories, share their bullshit, share whatever they have to share here more than most places in the world that I've been to. And, you know, sometimes it's, a, it's, it's the beautiful and then sometimes it's the not so beautiful, but that's life, it's everything in between. Can we hear another song? Yeah, absolutely. What are you gonna play for us? I'm gonna play a song called Majolie, And And uh, I wrote this along with Michael Juan Nunez and also Eric Atcock. Uh, It's gonna try to go like this.
2: One of the things that's clear about the music you write with Eric are the heroes that you worship, incorporate, bring in, cover, pay homage to. Uh, One of the the things that Eric talked about was the Bobby Charles cover that's on on Gulfstream, and he mentioned that you had been noodling around on it for years, and you decided after taking a writer's block break to come (coughs) and record it for Gulfstream. I want to talk about covering your heroes, because it's something that I think seems to always happen on records or live things, but never really discuss how musicians actually pick that or what comes ready to it. So when you begin to approach a cover, what has to be in that song that speaks to you or or wants you to make it in some way your own?
8: Well, uh, before it starts with a song, I think for me more so, it's still uh, uh where i'm from it's still regional it's still uh i want to pay homage to the people that that are surround that surround me here and growing up uh the guys like Clifton Chenier and the old guys and i know it's it's like it's passing on the legacy of our music whether i'm interpreting that song uh note for note or adjusting it to 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 fit my perspective or to what is comfortable in in the realm of my musicality as you know as a musician so when it be, when it becomes the focus to the song itself the story uh yeah i really i have to feel a part of it i have to feel something i have to feel Empathy for the character that's singing it. I have to 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 really dive in, or I'm just covering a song. It's not going to translate the same emotion if if I don't pour everything that I have into that. Uh, when I recorded, I hope I've been noodling with the song for a while. It was such a beautiful song. It didn't mean anything until my life was falling apart in divorce. And then it, it you know, the song took a new meaning. It took a, a new turn. Uh, and it still takes new turns. I, I I sing it now still in performance settings, but it doesn't, but I don't have the same emotions that I did once we laid the song down in the studio here in, at Dockside, you know, three, four, or five years ago by now. When you say noodling around for a while, how how long is a while? Uh, Well, I take time. A a while could be a year. A while could be a couple of years. It it could be 10 years. It took so long for us to record the record previous to Gulfstream, uh, uh, over a 10-year span, just for the sake of, I don't know. Life happens, and life gets in the middle and in the way sometimes, but um I tend to lay down material, lay down record material, and then sit on it for a bit, and then you know try to to get a new, fresh set of ears, a fresh uh, uh, again a perspective on on what this should sound like that I'm making, and then most of the time I drive myself crazy with going back and listening, and oh that could be better, and this could be better, and You know, today here at Dockside, that's kind of one of those days where I felt like I came here to sing some songs, re-sing some songs, and, you know, I have to be convinced by this amazing uh, engineer-producer, Justin Dockett, that, you know, that sounds really good. So, you know, every artist does that, I'm sure.
2: Do you find it harder to break your own songs or to break a cover?
8: You know, that's, I think... That's a great question. I feel like we've broken our songs much easier than breaking covers, but damn it, those covers sound so good, and they're such great songs that I, I want to keep doing them and keep spreading, spreading them out to the world and have new listeners hear them and hear the sound of Louisiana and for people to come back here.
2: Have any of the people you've covered been alive and commented back on what your take or your version of it?
8: Well, uh... We had one, and I say we, Eric, and I, uh, we wrote a song for Buckwheat, the late, great Buckwheat Zodico. Mm. Uh, it, it's an original song. It's called No Need for a Crown, and it basically talks about, you know, in the Zodico community, uh, there's lots of self-proclamation of kings, uh, and it's, it's, it's a part of, the, it's a part of the, the, the talk. It's part of the walk in the culture, and it's a beautiful thing. So the the song that we wrote for Buckwheat is, is really just saying that he's the best and there's been no need for a crown. Anyway, he was uh, getting really sick, and uh, toward the end of his life, unfortunately, we got a chance to play him the song, and he sent nothing but good, positive vibes and, and appreciation for it. and. Uh, so in that case, it holds a special place in our heart.
2: Last question, two parts. Taking it back to tons, when you're in the kitchen cooking, if there is music, what are you listening to?
8: Well, we have uh, some great Latinas in, uh, working in the kitchen, and they're playing some beautiful norteña music on their iPhones occasionally while, while they're prepping and while things are going on. Uh, We we don't have a jukebox yet, but I'm pretty sure that we're going to put more music in tons before too long.
2: And what is your specialty that you consider your best dish above all else?
8: Oh, I love making sauce. I love making sauces. Switch the proteins, it doesn't matter. I just love the process of cooking down onions and cooking down the trinity, the garlic, whatever you want to put into it. Uh, I love that process of just taking the time and and working the heat. Amazing. Um,
2: What's coming up next? Tours, more recordings?
8: More tours, more recordings. Uh, The Hub City All-Stars, we have a few big gigs here this year coming up already. I'm doing some solo things. I've got a trio that I'm working, going back to Europe later in the year, going up to... Canada for the big Congre Mondial uh, Acadian celebrations in the summertime, so lots of things happening,
2: yeah. Amazing. Where can people find you, find your music, find your tour
8: dates? Um, come to Lafayette, Louisiana, and just <laughs> knock on some doors and ask for my name. <laughs> no, Romero Music.com as well, and just search Roddy Romero. You'll, you can find something. What are you going to take us out with? Uh, I'll do one of those covers. Perfect. I was hoping you'd say that. Big
2: thank you to Holly and Tons. Big thank you for Justin to opening up uh, Dockside for us and letting us record this uh, special episode of Snacky Tunes today. We really appreciate it. Roddy, thank Thank you you. for for being here. Uh, We'll be back next week with uh, another episode of Snacky Tunes. Thanks for listening.
3: Ain't no sacred holy cow Got no pretty ruby mouth To smile and charm me through No clever silver tongue To flatter people into doing what I want them to Ain't much for pushing buttons Pulling puppet strings or fussing Besides making silly rhymes I really ain't much good at nothing but my heart keeps me amused in this big world of confusion Cause I'm a dreamer Hallelujah, I'm a dreamer No blue blood touch of class No laminated pass to where the in crowd has No flaming rum desserts No front row seats reserved When old Blue Eye sings But break it down and loving It's more than just a promise No gift to all the girls But I got the one I wanted And through any storm that blows She still loves me Yes, she knows that I'm a dreamer Hallelujah, I'm a dreamer. Mm-hmm. Pavement all around, green meadows can't be found. They will be dreamers. When every cotton field is gone, I hope my children will have grown to be dreamers. No boss to paint no mind, no turning wheels to grind. No blade of grass disturbed Or sleeping baby stirred there will be no noise at all Just a silent voice that calls to all the dreamers Hallelujah, I'm a dreamer And my heart keeps me awake. Hallelujah, I'm a dreamer